Good morning, Impact. How's everybody doing? I want to start with a parable because that seemed to work for Jesus about 50% of the time, so there must be something to it. So here I go. This is the parable of the water. Some of you are like, that's not what you're drinking though, is it, Pastor Rob? Is that water? You'll find out in a moment. A lot of things that I could compare as we go over temptation uh, with God's kingdom and the world and the differences between God's kingdom and the difference uh, in the world. Living in the world, sexual sin, the lust we sometimes have for shiny little objects or high-tech gadgets or anything, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh that the Bible talks about. But I've decided to use as an example two different liquids. One of them is water and the other one is the real thing, Coca-Cola. One of my favorite drinks, and this one's not open and this one's mine, you can't have it. Um, let's just pretend that water is God's kingdom stuff, the things that come from the Father, all right? So water, which I don't happen to have up here, any normal, can I get some, uh, a little thing of water so I can actually show it? That means somebody's running out to the little water, people are tripping over themselves. There, uh, Dory's got one right there, grab, handoff, nice. So we're going to compare God's kingdom stuff to just regular, ordinary water that you can get any time of the day. Thanks, Brad. And I'm going to say that Coke, on the other hand, is the world. And you got to get that. This is not going to mean anything to you if you don't get that, okay? So water is God's kingdom stuff. Coke is the world. Now, by my own admission, there used to always be a Coke of some kind, regular Coke, Diet Coke, or the new Coke Zero, preferably now, in the Singleton fridge. There's not a lot anymore because of this woman right here. My wife sitting up front, who has discovered some things about Coke and banned me from them. Now, she's not going to rush the stage and tackle me because she saw this Coke, right? Not going to do that because it's just for an example. But it's hard to find Coke now in the Singleton household, even though it's America's drink, even though it's so pure and good, even though it's associated with such loving things like, I'd like to buy the world a Coke, and everybody holds hands and joys. It's beautiful, but it really isn't. And you'll find out that it can be a little bit deceiving today. Coke, as far as I'm concerned, has all this yummy, I guess caramel colored is how I would describe it. That's how you describe it. Caffeine enhanced goodness. Caffeine helps the craving. Anybody know that? The caffeine actually helps you want more Coke and helps with the craving and makes me hyper, which I need sometimes when I preach. It has all been made better by, this one's cold. And so it's a hot... Summery day, you know, 90 degrees, and I come inside. If somebody offers me lukewarm water, I know, it's, I know it's good for me, but if somebody offers me a chilled Coke, for some reason, I'm going to go for that. I'm going to have a craving develop inside of me, and I'm going to want to have that thing. Now, these three temptations that, that are categorized in the Bible, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, are categories that Jesus went through. But I'm going to use this Coke as an example. It has the lust of the eyes, believe it or not. It's got a logo that's known all over the world. Uh, if you want a better tasting Coke, it actually comes in these bottles, these sexy little curvy bottles that it comes in with the logo on the front and the backdrop is that caramel color so it really pops. And it just looks more attractive than, say, this, which is just called spring water. It's kind of doubtful that it came from a spring, probably came from a tap, but it's ordinary water. There's nothing really sexy about that, but I think down inside, we all know it's better for us, right? This means, yes, I know water's better for me, and this means, no, I think Coke's better, in which case, you're wrong. So along with the craving, there's sort of the eye attractiveness thingy that Coke has going for it. 
Now listen to this though, water on the other hand, gang, it's always close, it's in creation, it's all around us. Some of you dealt with a lot of water this morning when you showered, some of you didn't deal with any water this morning. It sustains life, it cleans us up, it allows growth, it rains down on us. You probably don't think much about it when it's just raining, other than thinking it's probably an inconvenience when it's raining. All life is dependent on water, whether all life knows it or not. You are, you're dependent on water. Like Coke, though, the world comes in different flavors. Vanilla Coke, that was popular for a while. I think that's gone, isn't it? Is that still there? Didn't last? Wasn't there another Coke that came out for a while? Big mistake. What was that one that didn't last? New Coke. Yes, New Coke is gone. It's gone the way of old, old, old Coke. It doesn't even exist anymore. But there's a lot of varieties in it. Coke with sugar, Coke without sugar, Coke with artificial sweetener, Coke with caffeine, Coke without caffeine. I don't know why anybody would want that. Water, the kingdom stuff, is always there. The benefits of water are always there and around us. The life-sustaining growth that it brings is always there. You could easily take water for granted until you get thirsty and then you need it. How often, gang, do we pass over water for the Coke? Now, if Coke doesn't work for you, put something else in there. Some other drink. Maybe you're a Gatorade person. But how often do we pass over Coke, which we know is so good for us and so valuable and everything, for something that tastes good and something's a little sexier, that in the back of our mind we think, this might even be bad for me. This might not even be good. So one more thing about Coke. Turns out there's a few side effects. I want you to take a look at one you might not have been aware of. Look at this short little video about Coke. That's a tooth, by the way. That's pretty disgusting, isn't it? I mean, part of it is eaten away. I actually saw another one on a tooth where it was like three days, and all that was left was a little grain like the size of salt. It had disintegrated. Now, I could have done the old nail test. Have any of you seen that? Drop a nail in Coke for about a week. And I could have done the fork test. Here's why I didn't. How many of you have nails in your body? No? Anybody have a fork in their kidney? Nobody? But you have, most of you have teeth. Any of you not have teeth? I don't want to know. I don't want to know if you don't have teeth. And so I'm a lot more interested in what something that I'm putting in my body a lot like Coke does to these because I have these, right? And it turns out if you swash it around in your mouth, did it disintegrates. Oh, by the way, it gets worse. Check out this chart up here. I got a bigger version, so I'm going to tell you a couple of different effects. That's just a transparent human drinking a Coke. And as it turns out, it dissolves tooth enamel. We just saw it causes heart disease. It's been linked with reproductive problems. It, I cannot read that, but it causes kidney issues. And also anybody had kidney stones? Anybody here had kidney stones? Yeah, I've had six of them, and I'm a Coke lover. Not anymore. Kind of gave up the Coke, don't drink much of it, but I haven't had a kidney stone either for about eight, nine years. Sugar overload can even lead to things like first, like diabetes number one or diabetes number two. Obesity, increased risk of diabetes, osteoporosis for just a few things. Now, when I tell you all these things, does the excitement go away a little bit? I mean, all of a sudden, you're like, man, a Coke really tastes good, but I, I think now that I'm weighing it out, I don't know if I'll ever have another Coke again. 
So if there's anybody who works for Coke, I'm sorry that I did that to you. But here's what just happened. There's an old monk in, probably about 300 years ago, and he did a few writings, and he compared temptation and what we go through really like fishing and putting bait on a hook. And with every temptation to sin that Satan or his demons or anybody puts in front of us, there's always the job of hiding the hook. But there's always a hook. If Satan wants to tempt you to sin, the sin is the hook. And there's no such thing as bait with no hook in it. So what's the deal? What are you supposed to try to do? Try to make that bait look good enough that you forget there's a hook there, right? Try to make the bait look good enough that you'll nibble on the outside of the bait at least. Maybe you'll at least play with it because Satan knows if you play with it long enough, you'll probably take a big fat bite right into that hook. And when the hook gets you, you're gone. Temptation is a curious and multifaceted thing. It can lead to sin, but watch this. It can also lead to blessing. Do you ever think of it that way? Temptation can lead to blessing. Us being drawn and desired to do something is a part of life, and it can be good. For example, if my wife, sitting in the front row, so I can say it's safe, cuddles up to me when we're watching a movie. I see my daughter next to her. She's about to get grossed out, but bear with me, Julianne. Or so, and she's wearing that perfume that I love, one of my favorite conservative, maybe her outfit is one of my favorite conservative Amish outfits or a burqa or something like that, which is kid code for, since there's children in here, for something else, use your imagination. Uh, and, and, and even better, let's say Nathan and Julianne are out you know, with friends and we have the house to ourselves, kind of date night. Then I'm going to just be honest with you, I'm going to feel this strong temptation to kiss her. Is that gross because I'm your pastor? But I am. I'm just, now, anybody have a problem with that? Does anybody struggle? You shouldn't be talking like that. No, I mean, why? Because we're married. Somebody has a problem with that? Oh, they... Of course, under 12, they all have a problem with that. Now, let me paint you a different scenario. Married man traveling on business, going with people. He says, we have to go here because... These people I do business with love to go to the strip club. That's where we get most of our business done. He usually doesn't tell his wife. And when he's at the strip club, somebody's cuddling up to him too every few minutes in between pole dancing and nestling up to half a dozen other men. Is that different? And there's a temptation that he feels when he's at this club and this woman is very close to him. And he has that same temptation, that same desire. One leads to sin and one is good. One draws you away into death, one draws you away into life and a good thing that God created and gave us. So let me ask you this, why does temptation work so well? Why does it work so well? And when I mean well, and if you can get people to do something stupid, then I'm saying you're onto a good scam. If you can get people to do something that's bad for them and that's going to ruin their life, is going to mess them up, then you must be a pretty good salesman. That's what I mean by temptation working good. Why does it work so good? You ever wonder about that? I mean, most wrong things we're tempted to do are pretty obvious sins. I mean, you look at over history how many men and women, it's increasingly getting normal for men and women, to have an affair, to commit adultery. And when you look at that and you go, this is, this is clearly a damaging thing that hurts families and all. How come millions upon millions do it every year when it's so clearly damaging, so clearly hurtful, why would we be dumb enough to do this? They're pretty obvious sins. Yet the tantalizing tease of temptation can hide even the most barbed and ugly of hooks. You ever notice that? How many of you like to fish? 
Have you seen a, all, most of our fishermen over here, but have you seen, you know, sometimes there'll be little hooks, sometimes there'll be barbed hooks, sometimes there'll be hooks that are like triple hooks, or, or may have five or six hooks on the whole thing, it's all rusty and dirty, and you, you know, what if you just drop that in the water? I mean, you're going after that elusive sea bass or something, you just drop that hook in there. Are you going to expect much to happen? I mean, fish are dumb, but they're not that dumb, right? I mean, maybe they'll smell a scent on there or something. They're probably not going to bite that ugly, nasty thing. They can tell that that could hurt them, or if they pick at it, it's sharp, and they're going to back off. But it's funny, you cover it up with something that smells so good and attractive and something that looks good to whoever is being tempted, and it works. And that's all temptation is, really. It's the bait slathered all over the hook that makes you forget there's a hook in there at all. It's the momentary thrill that makes one forget pain is right around the corner. That's what temptation is. It's the 25-year-old supermodel edition of the Grim Reaper, right? The supermodel seems harmless, but the giant, sickle-carrying, black-hooded, red-eyed, skeleton-fingered messenger of death, the pictures of the Grim Reaper that we all see in carts and stuff, nobody's going to invite that guy to a party, right? But if you see somebody attractive and harmless, if they have the same motive of ruining your life, now, if you're a guy who's, who's married and, and a supermodel comes onto you and that kind of thing happens, the outcome is the same. The Bible says her ways, the, adulter- the ways of an adulteress, lead to death. But she's dressed it up a whole lot better, right? Right, guys? I mean, if the grim reaper comes to you carrying the sickle and all with his bony skeleton hand and reaches out, Craig, and he says, commit adultery, and you can be like me, not that attractive, Right? You're probably going to be real strong and go, I don't want to be like you. You're ugly and you're freaky and you're trying to kill me. I'm not going to pick on you again. I'll just say in general, guys, it might be a little bit harder if it's a supermodel. And I was trying to think of the name of a supermodel and I thought of Cindy Crawford, which tells you how old I am. Because <laughs> I don't think she is a supermodel anymore. I think she's a, a retirement home model. I'm not sure what she is now. <laughs> well, gang, listen, that's why the master tempter never appears as anything horrifying. That's why the master temper, and really any demons, anything, anyone of the fallen angels ever appears as who they really are. The Bible tells us how he's more likely to appear in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Check this out. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan, describes himself, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's funny, sometimes you'll talk to people who say, I've seen the devil. I've, I've seen him. In the, I mean, he was horrifying. He was so ugly. Then most likely you saw a figment of your imagination because he doesn't come like that. The Bible says probably the most attractive, the thing that sounds the best, it sounds good for you, it sounds loving to you, that's probably Satan. Satan is going to try and imitate what is good and pure and holy and saddle up right next to it, except he's not going to be it. That's his goal, to mimic it. I like angels. Anybody else here like angels? Anybody believe they have a guardian angel? And the Bible seems to indicate that we might, might have a guardian angel. I wouldn't mind having an angel around at times to protect me, to watch over me. That'd be nice if that's true. Have a few of them, several of them around. Demons? Anybody? Anybody have a demon friend? Not so much, right? Not even one. I don't want him around. So Satan doesn't appear as he really is a whole lot of the time. Now I want you to get this. This is, this is much more important for us today. 
And he doesn't present sin that way either. He never does. He does not appear as he truly is. And he will never present sin as it truly is, ever. Not many of us would be tempted to commit adultery if Satan started out showing you all the horrors of it, right? Hey, Joe, I'd like to just show you your crushed and devastated children. In my quest to convince you to have an affair, take a look at the financial burden that this divorce that's going to result in the affair that you have is going to put on you. And the bad morning breath of that dream girl that you thought was perfect. Now, ready to commit adultery? Here's another one. When you look at people that are wasting away, you know, like heroin addicts, and you see how they've gotten, you go, why would they be dumb enough to do this? Who would start down this road that ruins your life? Well, Satan doesn't come to them and says, heroin is great. I mean, it's a high like nothing else you've ever tried. Want to see some long-term believers? Here's Joey. I'd say he has about six months to live. He spent the last decade in and out of jail, living on the streets when not in the slammer and robbing and stealing in order to get money for his next fix. He is to sell himself in the sex industry, but no one has been interested for years since he's wasted away to nothing. So now he begs and borrows and steals in order to keep the heroin flowing. You want to give it a try? No. But that's what will really happen down the road once you get hooked. But that's the hook. And Satan never presents the bloody, rusty, gnarly, sharp hook. He always presents the bait. And sadly, even believers make their goal not to avoid the, the bait or not to listen to Christ, but to figure out how to get the, some of the bait off, how to figure out how to get the bait for a short period of time and then pull back, how to play with the bait, how to toy with the bait instead of avoiding it altogether and recognizing the hook that's in there. And today we're going to look at the last part of how Jesus does that, the third way that he'll teach us to avoid the hook. We're in the third and final week of studying the 40-day temptation and Satan has been wearing Jesus down for 40 days. We learned in the last couple of weeks that most of us, when we've been taught through this passage, you know, we hear that Jesus went out and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the devil came and tempted him. And most of us know the three temptations, but maybe you were like me. Growing up, when I read through this, I thought, well, so he fasted for 40 days, and he was with his father praying for 40 days. And at the end of that, there's these three little temptations. They're not that big a deal. And he kind of had to get his temptation you know, Messiah checklist done, so check, he's done. And that's kind of what it looks like, right? But if you read that carefully, and especially if you look at how the Greek presents that, Jesus did not face the temptation after he was done. Those were just the three final temptations that he faced. In other words, Satan was absolutely dogging his trail for 40 days, tempting him in every way. And we've learned in the past couple of weeks that there were three categories or three ways that Satan tried to wear Jesus down. The first one was trying to get Jesus to make anything or anyone supreme in his life other than his father. That's the first one. Anything, even food. Hey, you're hungry? What kind of a father would, would let you out here for 40 days starving like that? Why don't you just take the stone? You created it. Why don't you just take that stone right here? Here, turn that to bread and we can satisfy that right now. I mean, I came up with that. Your father doesn't care. He's letting you. So what would that be doing? That would be tempting Jesus to make his appetite supreme. And Jesus didn't, he didn't bite. He said, in fact, the word of God says, my father's word says, man shall not live by bread alone. That life is not just about what you eat. So that didn't work. What was the second one? Any of you remember? 
Identity crisis people, anybody remember? And really this second one is, is present in all three of them, trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is. In fact, some of these temptations in this last one this week will start out with this. If you are the son of God, why would Satan say that? Do you remember what happened right before the 40 days and he went out there and got tempted? What event took place? Jesus was baptized. And when he came up out of the water, there was a loud voice that said what? From his father. Blessed are you, this is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That should solve the identity crisis thing, right? Loud thundering voice from his father. Who are you, Jesus? You're my son. Everyone, I want you to know he's my son. I'm very well pleased in him. Now off to the desert for the temptation. So why would Satan even bother going, are you really his son? Are you really God? Because gang, if Jesus does not believe this, if Jesus begins to doubt it, and by the way, the way Satan tries to get him to doubt it is to say that a parent who loves you takes care of you. A parent that loves you gives you what you want. A parent that loves you sees you hungry and they feed you. A parent that loves you does all these good things. And what you're going through right here and what you tell me you've come to do doesn't make sense for a loving father. You're going to suffer on the cross? Well, that's not loving. People are going to ridicule you? If, if I had children and somebody was picking on them, I'd step in. I'd save them. You're going to go hungry? You're going hungry right now? What kind of father is that? Maybe that's not your father. Maybe you're not God. You ever think about that? And what would happen if Jesus bought that temptation? And this is why Satan starts out, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, then do this. Do this because it'll prove you're the son of God. Turn something into food because the son of God could do that. But what does that do if he thinks, maybe I'm not the son of God? Gang, when you and I have an identity crisis, like you don't know you're a child of God, then you get off mission. Jesus created you for a purpose in this life, and it's to bring glory to him and to build his kingdom. And if you do not believe that you are a cherished and loved child of God, then you will get off mission. Will you not? Because you'll be mad at him. You'll think he doesn't love you. You think you don't belong, so you'll do your own thing. Or you'll make life match a more loving scenario that makes sense. Now, this may seem stupid to do this with the Son of God because he's God, but listen, he's also fully man. So right now, at this period of time, according to Philippians 2, Jesus has laid aside his divinity. So there's a human sense in him where he can get hungry, and the Bible would not have said he was tempted if he was not tempted. That means he was, his human side was literally tempted. He just didn't follow through. He didn't sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. Some of you have maybe been brought up where you think it's a sin just to feel a certain way. It's a sin to be hungry if, if you've got a problem with gluttony. No, the hunger's not bad. But if, you've, if you overeat, then it's bad. It's a sin to have sex. It's a sin to want to have sex. No, not within marriage, but outside of the boundaries of God. It is. So if you're tempted to go beyond that, it is. So Satan wants to take this and completely twist it. You know, most often we hear this passage preached, and it says that the sins that Jesus were tempted to commit fall into three categories. And if you didn't get these before when I said them, let me say them again real quick. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And gang, as I studied it the last two weeks, I think that's true. I think most sin does fall into these categories, but here's what I've found out. The temptation to make something supreme, the temptation to put some other God on the throne of your life, the identity crisis, and the last one that we're going to finish with today are the temptations underneath the temptations. Does that make sense? Beyond the pride of life, 
beyond the lust of the flesh, beyond, the lust of, beyond these broad categories, there's something that Satan's trying to get you and I to do. And that's the identity crisis, the appetite of something supreme other than God and what we're going to talk about today. So look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Let me read. And then Satan took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, here it is, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Now, it's interesting here, Satan's using Scripture. Now, we live in a time, gang, when we are more biblically illiterate than any other time, and, and what's probably in, in the history of Christianity. And what's crazy about that is the average home has about nine Bibles, and that's probably not counting iPads and iPhones and all the electronic versions that we have. And yet, people don't know the most basic things about the Bible. But do you know who knows the Bible better than you, even if you study your whole life? Got a little kid raised. So he knows the Bible better than me. Okay. But do you know who else knows the Bible better than you and me and him? Satan. He's been studying it for thousands of years. In fact, he thinks he knows it so good, he's going toe-to-toe with the Son of God with his own word. Gang, if you don't spend time in the Word of God and time in prayer and time getting to know God, you are a sitting duck for Satan. You're a sitting duck because he does know the Word and he knows how to use it manipulatively. And he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. In other words, if you're the Son of God, then God said he'll protect you. Well, what if he doesn't protect you? He must not be the Son of God. Do you see what he's doing? And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you even strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus used the scripture against him. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So you can make the devil back down and he will tap out eventually, but he will come back. He'll just look for a more opportune time. What's the final temptation? Write this down. It is the temptation of safety or the temptation of control. Now, I promise you probably haven't heard that for this last one. You probably thought it was something else in those categories I mentioned before. But I really believe it's the temptation for believers to control their life and to keep safe and comfortable and cozy until the day they die and go home to be with the Lord. And that is one of the worst temptations you could give into. So let's unpack that a little bit since it's different than what you probably heard. First of all, Satan again plays the identity card, like I told you. If you are the son of God, then control this thing, Jesus. If you're the son of God, look, Scripture says you can't get hurt, but you look like you're hurting right now. You're starving. You're wasting away. You've been fasting for 40 days. I have my doubts, and I'm sure you do, as I've been whispering in your ear for 40 days. So let's just solve this one right now. If you just bungee jump right here without a cord off the temple, you won't even hit the ground. You know it. I know it. Your father's word says that. Just try it. And when he sweeps you up, you'll know. You'll have that certainty. Even your human side won't doubt. But what is that, gang? It's a test. It's control, is it not? It's telling Jesus and more us that we can tell God what to do. Now, don't answer this by raising your hands, but how many times, I know that I've done this a lot, where I don't know what God's doing. I'm not sure what he's doing in my life that I've said, God, if you will just do this and show me, I will do this. Have you ever done that? 
God, I really want to move out for you. God, I'm all sold out for you, but I'm just not clear on this, and there's a lot of risks ahead. This looks a little dangerous, so if you don't show up, I mean, I feel like your spirit is clearly telling me, but I don't know, so give me a sign. It's the Gideon thing, right? And sometimes it gets confusing because sometimes in God's word, he does show a sign. And sometimes with my friends, sometimes in my own life, he has shown a sign. But that doesn't mean I can control God. That doesn't mean I call the shots. And it doesn't mean that if he doesn't show a sign, that he's not in it. And what Satan's trying to do here is go, look, there's some things that don't add up, Jesus. You can make them all add up right now. You're God. You should be calling the shots. People shouldn't mock you. People shouldn't put you on a cross. There's got to be another way, a more comfortable way, a more easy way, a more prosperous way. You could do yourself without any pain and all comfort. Why don't we just take that route? It fits God better than this, does it not? Now, when I looked at it this past week this way, I thought, I used to think these temptations were kind of JV, not really very varsity temptations, but I don't think that anymore. I think in light of the fact that Satan was working on them for 40 days, these are brilliant. They're meant to be small at the end. When you've been wearing someone down and there's almost nothing left, then you try something quick, right? All I need to do is get them to cross that line once. I've been working on them for 40 days. Here's a rock. Just turn it to bread, right? I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. I mean, I would have thought, wouldn't a greater temptation be, you know, turn it into Chick-fil-A, turn it into a seven-course meal? I mean, you're the creator. Why a piece of bread from a rock? And by the way, that's not a sin. What's sinful about bread? Nothing. But it's the quickness and the, and the smallness of that request that would get the biggest temptation to just cross the line just a little bit. It's a tiny little hook. You can barely even see it. But what's the problem? Who, not asked, but who commanded Jesus to do this? Satan, right? So who would he be serving? Who's the new God in that scenario? Satan. Because he said, command this to be turned into bread. And you could be eating right now. That's not a request. He's saying, if you're the son of God, do this. Do it. It's subtle. It's small. It's not a big deal. And it's not sin. But as soon as he does it, he's sinned by obeying Satan. These are huge because they're so strategically placed. So it's the temptation of safety. And like I said before, let me try to unpack this for you. He plays the identity card. Satan's been building a case that makes sense to many of us, which is this. Parents who love us, they show that love by making us comfortable, wealthy, never letting us go without. How many times have you heard that? You know, if my kids are, or don't have something, I'm going to buy it for them. I'm going to make sure they never lack because when I grew up, I didn't have these things. I want my kids to have these things. They'll never want for anything. Sometimes we think we're doing our kids good when we do that. And keeping our children safe. So they never yell at their kids. That would be bad. They never allow bad things to happen if they can help it. They always bail us out. You know, if maybe we get in trouble with school or anything, we can never be wrong. It must be our teachers. And they go after anyone who tries to hurt us. That's what a good parent does. That's what a loving parent does. Jesus, your father's not loving under any scenario that I know of, this doesn't fit. So we bail them out, give them everything, and absolutely make their life a cakewalk. That's good parenting. And I would say, sure, if your parents are Rick and Kathy Hilton, and you're named after the most popular city in Paris, I mean city in France, Paris, then maybe that works, giving them everything that they want. 
But all we have to do is look at the papers every day or read online about the prima donnas who are given everything they want and, and never, never lack for anything, always defended, and see how their lives are turning out. I don't really want to get on a, a naming thing. I could. I mean, you could look at people that seem to start out great. Je- Jessica Simpson, Britney Spears, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian. Look at how they, they never lack for anything. How are their lives turning out? Well, they're pretty wealthy. I wouldn't mind that. But how are their lives as people that you would take seriously working out? I think most of us would say, you know what? Now that I look at it and they're growing up, I would say that's bad parenting. That's not loving parenting. You know what Paul says in Hebrews? The one the father loves, he disciplines. The child that is a true child of God will be disciplined. And the one who is not disciplined is not a true child of God. So it's a little different than the way Satan is painting the picture. Back to risk. Have you ever noticed that anything worth having has a risk? You ever notice that? Anything worth, anything you want in life has some kind of risk to it. Want to get married? Here's a risk. You might end up divorced. 50% of marriages end in divorce. So if you really want to get married, there's a risk. You might end up in divorce. You want your children to have fun? You want your children to play sports? Here's a risk. They might get hurt. They could, right? Could break a bone. You want to help others? You want to go on a mission trip? You might get sick. You might catch something bacterially. Maybe you'll get kidnapped. It's kind of dangerous. But these are things we want to do. Everything worth doing in life just has some inherent risk to it. In fact, parents, let me see your hands. Where are the parents here? Then you know this, right? You want to elevate the game real quick? This feeling of risk? Let's talk about having children. And I don't mean pregnancy and the risks that come with this. I mean having kids. Because I don't know that I ever felt fear or concern or a desire to keep safe or desire to protect or any of these feelings more intensely than when Nathan and Juliana came along. Right, parents? I don't want to see my kids hurt. And I doubt any of your parents are different. I doubt anybody sitting there right now. I love seeing them hurt. Love to see them cry. Get a thrill out of that. No, you don't. You want to protect them. You want to keep them safe. And so sometimes I'm tempted to try and create a path or a life for them that's not best for them. Satan can play off that. It's the whole safety thing. Now, some of you read through these passages dozens of times in your life, and I got a question for you. This, this passage on temptation. Have you ever noticed how hard the devil is working to make sure Jesus does not suffer, to make sure Jesus is safe and cozy? Have you ever looked at it that way? Look at these three temptations we know of. We don't know of the rest, but have you ever noticed how hard Satan is working on, you shouldn't suffer, you shouldn't get hurt, you shouldn't even stub your toe, are you hungry, you should do this. Look at how hard he's working to make sure Jesus goes through nothing painful. Look how hard he's working to contrast himself with what seems to be the path the Father's sending him on. Have you picked up on that? He says, oh, you're hungry? I don't get that. God wouldn't want you hungry. Eat some bread. What, there are men trying to kill you? There's men that are going to reject you? You're walking that path? Let me give you all the power on earth, all the kingdoms, all the cities, so you can rule them, and they won't reject you at all. What, your, your final mission is to go to the cross? 
and to shed your blood and to be beaten and scourged and ridiculed and eventually you can't even breathe and you drown in your own blood? What kind of loving mission is that? Oh, that's got to stop. And in fact, when anybody speaks of that kind of path of getting Jesus off mission, if you ever wondered who that is, whether that's Satan or not, or you think I'm full of it right now, let me give you another example. And I told some of you this last week, but maybe you don't remember. About halfway into Jesus' ministry, when he's camping out and disciples of him are sitting probably in a circle and they'd gone on a journey and they're heading for Jerusalem, Jesus stops, they're eating, and he asks them a question. Here's the question. Who's everybody saying that I am? Remember that question? What's the word on the street? Who am I? And do you remember the answer from the disciples? Kind of caught him off guard. Uh, Elijah? I've heard that. John the Baptist? He's dead, but you're the reincarnation of him. Or some other prophet heard that. Zechariah? There's all kinds of answers. And I'm sure they were disappointing to the Son of God, the Messiah, right? So he stops and he goes, okay, well, that's the word on the street. How about you? And you've been camping out with me for a year and a half, two years. Any thoughts? Who am I? That's a familiar question, isn't it? Have you figured out my identity? Are you having a crisis about my identity? Who am I? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, you don't have it. Jesus said to him, you don't have any idea how blessed you are that you said that. You didn't even come up with that. My Father in heaven just gave you the right answer. That's how beautiful that is. And then they pack up and they get back on the road and Jesus starts as they're walking to explain where I'm going. Now, this sounds a little different, but I'm going to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and all them, they're going to have put me on trial. They're going to condemn me and kill me, but on the third day I'll rise again. Well, Peter didn't like that. Well, that's not very loving. That doesn't seem like the right course. And he got in front of Jesus and you just picture him blocking him and he said, may it never be. As long as I live, you're not going there. Change of plans. What did Jesus, if you ever doubt who's behind, we're going to take a more comfortable road, Peter says. You're going to be king. We'll be many kings underneath you. People will obey you. Show them your miracles. Certainly there's a better path. And Jesus said to him, what? Get behind me who? Well, that's not Peter's name, is it? It is now. I've heard that before, Peter. You're on the wrong path. This is the wrong plan. And that's not what a loving father looks like. In fact, my loving father loves you so much that he's letting me, and I've agreed to this, pay the price for you. That's what a loving father does. I'm here on a rescue mission. Do you realize if I go set up a kingdom right now and I don't die on that cross, that you'll have a nice cushy life, but you'll spend eternity in hell because that price has not been paid? I'm going on a much more loving mission. Get behind me, Satan. You're trying to get me off mission. And that's what temptation is. The first thing, the first goal that Satan has for you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is that you will never know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the first goal. If you come to Christ, there's only one other goal He has for you. Put you on a shelf, get you to doubt who you are so that you are ineffective and do not use your life to bring others to Christ. That's it. Now, some of you are kicking the tires of Christianity, you're checking this out, and you don't know if you want to become a believer yet, you know, but you're hearing some things. God wants you. God died for you. Satan would say, no, he didn't. That's not a loving father. Some of you are believers, but you're looking at your life and going, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not really living all out for God. You've been shelved. Do you know who you really are in Christ? Do you know the power that you have? 
Scripture says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I for victorious living. Do you tap into that power? Or do you spend your days just doubting who you are, blaming God for the bad things in your life? So it's pretty interesting here that every attack that's from what's evil is not built around this absolute wickedness, but it's more built around keeping Jesus safe and cozy and comfortable, specifically this last one. If you're the son of God, your feet shouldn't even bleed. But Jesus doesn't play it safe. He plays it obedient. Please hear that. Jesus didn't play it safe. He played it obedient. And when we're living in obedience to our Father, guess what? That's the safest place you could be. If God calls you to get from point A to point D, then B and C aren't going to stop you, right? But if you go off on your own thing, well, then you're on your own. But if he called you for a mission and you're walking with him, that mission will get done. You're in the safest place possible when you are in the center of his will. There's no safer place. So how crazy that we try to keep our lives comfortable, cozy, and safe, and it's probably the most risky thing we could do with our lives. So Jesus didn't play it safe. He didn't even play it safe with his reputation. He hung out with completely dysfunctional human beings. Drunks, prostitutes, tax collectors, got this group of really wicked human beings and they just clung to Jesus and they just hung on his every word. They, they loved hearing him teach. They loved walking with him. They felt his forgiveness and acceptance even though it was tearing apart Jesus' reputation. So he didn't play it safe. He just played it obedient. Everything in life is worth a risk. I want to kind of close with this. We took our children probably seven, eight, nine years ago, however long ago it was, to Katrina Relief, right after the hurricane struck. You guys remember Katrina? And there, Michelle and I were with a team that spent their time demolishing houses full of mold and mildew and all kinds of things. We were chainsawing trees and clearing brush and serving meals to the homeless. And our kids, and I mean kids, Nathan, I believe, was about seven or eight at the time. Juliana was either five or six. They went with us. And Many people told us that they were too young. Why are you taking your kids? I mean, what can they possibly do? They're too young. But gang, it was a growing experience for both of them. It was a marker in their young lives. They still talk about today. Let me continue. Could bad things have happened to them at Katrina? Yeah, I, I guess. But they didn't. A few years later, we took them to Mexico to minister to the Mayan people. And it was during a time, still going on now, when the drug cartels were kidnapping a lot of people and killing people. It wasn't real safe to go down there, but we weighed the risks and we took them anyway. Juliana, when we were down there, actually contracted a bacterial infection that woke her up in the middle of the night screaming. So here we are about three days left before we, two days left before we go, and I hear this blood-curdling scream in the middle of the night, and I ran in there, and there's my girl, my little girl, and she's crying. She's about 12 years old, and she's screaming. She says, I can't feel my legs. That'll get you. I can't feel my legs. I can't move my legs. And, you know, we had somebody with us that was, we didn't even have a doctor. We had a, I think an orthodontist. Next best thing comes in. He tried the best to figure out what was going on. We tried to get her to a hospital down there. There aren't any hospitals down there, really. So all we could do was try and keep her safe. She had to spend the last part of the trip in a wheelchair. She had to go through the airport in a wheelchair. She got home. We found out it was a bacterial infection that if left untreated, probably would have paralyzed her could have killed her. We treated with antibiotics and she's fine. Now let me ask you something. Would she look back on that trip and trade it? I've, I've asked her. 
What if you knew that was going to happen to you before you went? Would you go? She loved that trip. She'd go. She'd still go. Are there risks? Sure. You know why I think she went? Because I think she already learned an ancient lesson that we taught her when she was really little. I call it the lesson of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, when we hear that story in the Old Testament, they stood up, they did not worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They got threatened to be thrown in the fiery furnace. They were thrown in the fiery furnace, but they were given a chance before they were thrown in the fiery furnace to recant what they said. And sometimes we don't focus on what was said there. Do you know how they responded? Oh, good King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace. Yay, we all, I mean, that's great. But here's the next line that's even greater. But even if he does not, but even if he doesn't, let it be known that we will not worship the statue that you've set up. We, we won't do it. Do you know what that means? We've already determined in our heart not to play it safe. We're going. If it means we go in the fiery furnace at this moment, then we go. We know our God can save us. We know that if we jump, the angels could catch us and carry us up. I already know that's true. But if he happens to change his mind and for us, lets us burn, and he doesn't catch us up, he's still God. I'm not supposed to be in control. I don't dictate. I don't say to God, I'm going to do all this for you, and I'll be a great testimony in the fiery furnace if you pull me out of the fiery furnace. No, we say before we ever meet the fiery furnace that no matter what happens, you are God and you are on your throne. I will not play it safe. I will take risks for you, God. Two years ago, I took Nathan to Haiti. In fact, it was right after, it was just a few months after, some of the guys here went with me, it was a few months after the coup down in Haiti, after the earthquake. And so it was another time of uprising. They nearly descended into civil war. And even my extended family and a lot of people, even at church, said, you're crazy. There's malaria down there that's running rapid. People are dying of cholera. There's kidnappings now, unrest. The roads are crazy, filled with reckless driving. Uh, nobody's policing anything down there right now. And I thought about it. Wrecks, sickness, danger. That's true. Maybe that could happen. But here's my dilemma, and parents, please, please hear this, especially where we're sitting right now, Weddington, North Carolina, at Weddington Middle School. My dilemma, and it's still my dilemma, is my children are being raised in Weddington. And maybe that doesn't scare anybody here, but it should. That terrifies me. That terrifies me. They're living in a place that's comfortable and safe and largely wealthy and pretty much privileged it's got one of the lowest crime rates in all of Charlotte, and even the crime rates are for silly little things that don't matter that much. So here's what I'll tell you about my daughter and my son. Here's what I really am worried about. If I'm going to worry about anything, it would be this. What if they grew up thinking that Weddington is what the rest of the world is like? What if they grew up and expected the rest of the world to be like Weddington? They might easily end up thinking that most of the world gets to be really, really picky about what they have for lunch and dinner. They may think that an iPhone and an Xbox is not a good enough haul for Christmas. That might be their frame of reference. So how in the world am I supposed to teach my children empathy and compassion and hope while they live in Camelot? And I say Camelot because Camelot is beautiful on the outside, but really not on the inside. How am I supposed to do that? 
So gang, we've got to take some risks and we've got to let go of control. And this is why when we do child dedications at Impact Church, we say, our kids are not our kids. We know that, God. Thank you for the opportunity to raise them. And now I give them back to you. I set them before your throne. They're your kids to raise. Help me to be a good steward and to let them go and not control. And to not to always play it safe, but to teach them to live all out for you. Got to take risks. You've got to take risks. Now, some of you are going, I don't like where the pastor was going with this. Let me tell you, I'm not talking about taking your kids to the remains of the U.S. Embassy in Libya and putting I Love Jesus shirts on them or WWJD and saying, go pass out tracks to Al-Qaeda and, you know, and come back when you're and tell me how it went. Now, I'm not talking about stupid stuff right now, but intrinsically, there's, there's some risk, right? There's some risk. Not foolish stuff, but in anything worthwhile that God calls you to do. I'm talking about taking risks. All right, one question for you, application, and we're done. It's the question I would like for you to ask every week at Impact. Two words, so what, right? So what? I mean, here's some information about temptation. Here's what Jesus went through. You ought to be asking yourself, so what, Pastor Rob? What does that have to do with me? What can I do about it? Here's how, just a few things I want you to apply this week. Parents, again, where are you? Oh, we got a lot of parents in here. This week, I want you to go before the Lord. I want you to spend some time just you and Him alone and ask Him to reveal to you where you have been trying to control things regarding your kids. I've had to do this. Where have you been trying to control things regarding your kids? I don't want them to go. I don't want little Johnny to go. He might get hurt. He might get... Where have you been trying to do this? Where what you're really trying to do is control God. What you're really trying to do is keep them comfortable and safe and wealthy and give them everything you want, and you're probably doing the worst thing possible. Where have you been doing that? Ask God to reveal that because you're really taking your child down the wrong path. I'm not saying that you go drop them off on the freeway and say, have at it at five years old. Live your life. I'm letting you go. Not foolish, but where are you trying to protect them for the wrong scenario? Jesus did not come to save you from any kind of pain or trials in this life. He did not come to make earth heaven. He did not come to make you extremely wealthy, prosperous, totally comfort, and have no risks in life. It doesn't mean you might not have those things, but that's not the primary purpose. And if you shoot for that, you cannot be on God's path. Everyone else, have you been playing it too safe? Three quick things. Here's how you can find out if you're one of these people playing it too safe. Do you talk more about how things will never work or how things are a great opportunity for God to show up? Here's the difference. Do you, when you're called to do great things for God, do you always complain about, well, this won't work because of this, this, and this. Well, this won't work because nobody wants to do it. Well, this won't work because people are, are going to criticize it. Is that what comes out of your mouth more? Or do you look at challenges and say, this is a great opportunity for God? Which way do you go? If you talk more about how it will never work, then you're trying to control your life. Number two, do you always have an excuse for why you don't go on mission trips or local outreaches or go out witnessing? Do you always have a reason why you can't do that? Then you're playing it too safe. Have you ever tried, number three, to do something that was sure to fail if God didn't show up? Ever. Have you ever tried to do something you know God's calling you to do and you know will fail if he does not show up? If you 
don't have things like that in your life, you're playing it too safe. And you've given in to this lie, this third temptation. Time to get out of the boat like Peter did, dysfunction and all, and walk on the water with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I have loved this journey. It's been sobering. It's been enlightening. Father, and, and it's been convicting. Things that you've shown me in the life of your son, in the wilderness, those 40 days, I realized that that was a much more pivotal time in his life and a much more important time for us than I ever thought before. Lord, help us to learn from these temptations, Father, that he has faced things that we'll face and that he's shown us that there will be a way to get out of these temptations. There's a way to face them and there's a way to overcome them. We don't have to take the bait. Father, I pray that we will love your mission, risks and all. Father, we're in the middle of that mission right now. Father, we're a startup church. We're meeting in a gym. We're pulling out folded metal chairs. We don't have a lot of things, but we do have faith. And we know that this will fail, God, unless you show up. But we're thrilled because we expect you to show up. You called us to this mission, Lord. And if you lead the way and we join hands with you, this is going to make an impact, Lord. This is going to make a difference. This will be more of a movement than just a church. And we pray that it is because we know it's an honor to join hands with you. God, give us courage. Give us boldness as a church, as a body. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. See you all next week.